So we're taking a break from our series in Colossians today, and we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 23. So turn there in your Bible, 2 Samuel 23. When we have these one service Sundays where we're all in here, two services come together, and we've got adults and teenagers and babies and everything in between, and we're all crammed in here as one big family. On those days, I especially like to preach out of the Old Testament. Um, I always like to preach out of the Old Testament. Um, I was an Old Testament major in seminary, so anytime I can preach from it, I do. But I also do it because I want the next generation to grow up loving the Old Testament. I want to make the Old Testament easy to understand, hard to forget, and impossible to ignore. And I put that on my resume 12 years ago when I applied for the senior pastor position here at Grace. I said that I want to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make God's word easy to understand, hard to forget, and impossible to ignore. And I especially want to do that with the first half of your Bible. I also like preaching from weird, strange Scratch your head, what in the world does this verse mean? That's a hard-to-preach passage kind of Old Testament passages. Those are my favorite. So let's look at one of those in 2 Samuel 23 today. It's not so much strange as it is like, how do you preach that? So I'm going to read a large chunk of it, so buckle up. Um, But here's what we'll see in our passage today. God can't remember all the bad things you've done. And he won't forget all the good things you do. God cannot remember all the bad things you've done, which are a lot. And he won't forget all the good things you do for him, for his kingdom, for his church, for his glory. Now, let me show you where I'm getting all of that from a list of dead soldiers So we'll start with the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back to the beginning, or at least verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 23, look at verse 24, and hear the word of the Lord. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shema of Herod, Elika of Herod, Helez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anatoth, Mabuni the Hushtathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai of Netophah, Heleb the son of Baana of Netophah, Ittai the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abi Albon the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Baharim, Eliaba the Shealbanite, the sons of Jason, Jonathan, Shema the Hararite, Ahim the son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphelet the son of Ahazbi of Maacah, Eliam the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Paarai the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zerariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Now, doesn't that just warm your heart? If somebody came in while I was reading, I was not speaking in tongues. Um, 
Nothing like a list of dead people to give you the warm fuzzies when you read the Bible. Well, I hope you know what the key to reading those names are is you just do it with confidence. Nobody's going to know if you mispronounce it or not. You, you own it and you just move on. And you're like, you know what? I pronounce a has-by of Ma'aka right. You're wrong. Well, I hope after today your heart is warmed and you break out with a massive case of the warm fuzzies because this list of dead warriors actually tells us a lot about Jesus. Believe it or not, you can actually learn quite a bit about God from all those lists of names in the Old Testament. You know, the ones you highlight and underline and put on your coffee mugs. You probably have a heading in your Bible before verse 8 that says something like David's mighty men. And that's what this list is. It's a list of warriors, a list of soldiers who did some pretty incredible things on the battlefield. For instance, in verse 8, we read about a Tachemanite man named Josheb Bashabeth. That's a tongue twister. Say Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachemanite, ten times real fast. Well, what did Jobas do? Look at verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachemanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. So what did Jobas do? He single-handedly took out 800 men in battle. That's all. No biggie. Um, it's just Jobas and his spear, and he killed 800 men in battle one day. Then in verses 9 and 10, we read about a man named Eliezer. Look at verse 9. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord, Yahweh, brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So here's what happened. That day on the battlefield, all the Israelite men saw the Philistine army. They all chickened out and ran away. But Eleazar fought the Philistines all by himself. And the text tells us he killed so many people in battle that his hand was wore out. Yeah. And not just weak and wore out. The text says his hand clung to the sword. Well, what does that mean? I think it means that he killed so many people that the blood coagulated on and around his sword and hand that it got stuck. It became like sticky glue. There was so much blood there. It just kind of all stuck together. And then in verses 11 and 12, we read about a man named Shema. Look at verse 11. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord, Yahweh, worked a great victory. So just like Eleazar, Shema stood his ground when all his fellow soldiers were scared off by some Philistines. So he's there in this garden, in this field of lentils, this field of beans, and Shema is not going to let the Philistines get their groceries. This is their food. Like, you're not getting our beans. So everybody leaves him. 
They take off running in fear. And Shema stays put and defeats them all. And now they're going to have lentil soup for dinner. Shema loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength, and lentils. But notice that two times the author of 2 Samuel tells us who was behind Eleazar and Shema when they were fighting the armies all by themselves. In verse 10 it says, And Yahweh brought about a great victory that day. And then verse 12, And Yahweh, the Lord, worked a great victory. It was God himself, Yahweh. That's God's covenant name in Hebrew. It was Yahweh who empowered these two men to fight these armies all by themselves. And so as you continue to read the passage in 2 Samuel 23, you have to keep these two verses in mind. They serve as a banner over this list of David's mighty men. All the exploits of David's mighty men can be attributed to the Lord, to Yahweh. Then in verses 13 through 17, we read about three mighty men who risked their lives to get David a bottle of Avion water. Look at verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord, to Yahweh, and said, Far be it from me, O Yahweh, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So here's what's happening. David and company are hiding out in a cave, and David kind of says very nonchalantly, y'all, I wish I had a cold drink of water from the well in my hometown at Bethlehem. That would just hit the spot right now, like a taste of home. And as soon as David speaks his wish out loud, three of his mighty men take off on what is a 25-mile round trip uh, to Bethlehem, to David, to get him some of his hometown water. So they bust through the Philistine army, fill up a bucket of water or maybe some wineskin or something, a water bottle, and then they bring it back to David. And David is overwhelmed by their loyalty and their bravery and their friendship. And then he pours the water out on the ground after a 25-mile round trip. Why? Because David realized that only the Lord was worthy of such devotion. He poured the water out as an offering to Yahweh and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? And so for David, the water wasn't merely water. It represented the blood of the men who risked their lives to get it for David. And since the blood of sacrifices belongs to the Lord... David pours the water out as an offering. Only the Lord is worthy of such risk, devotion, and sacrifice. Amen? Only Jesus is worthy. Only Jesus is worthy of adoration and affection and allegiance. David knew that. Do you know that? Only the Lord 
is worthy. Only Jesus is worthy of adoration and affection and allegiance. There's a few more of David's mighty men that I want to highlight. Abishai and Benaiah. Look at verse 18. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Now, Abishai is an interesting character. Uh, Jeff Orge, who's the president of Gateway Seminary, pointed this out once at a pastor's conference that we used to have here at Grace. Um, He said this, that every time Abishai is mentioned in the Old Testament, he has a sword in his hand. He's like a Jedi Knight from Star Wars. But in every passage, Abishai just doesn't have a sword in his hand. In every passage, he's either killing somebody or he's asking David for permission to kill somebody. So here are a couple of passages where he's... I'll give you a few quotes of Abishai. 1 Samuel 26, 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. In other words, I won't miss David. I'll kill him with the first shot. Abishai is trigger-happy, and he's accurate. A deadly combination. Here's another example, 2 Samuel 16, 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Abishai was trigger-happy, always ready to chop some dude's head off. And so we're not surprised to see here in 2 Samuel 23 that he killed 300 men with his spear. 300 men were no problem for Abby. Then we have Benaiah who killed a lion in the middle of a snowball fight. Look at verse 20. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and then killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. So, it's a snowy day. Benaiah is busy building a snowman. And I'm guessing he slipped and fell into a pit, which were these gigantic uh, underwa- uh, underground uh, areas. This is what Daniel or, uh, in the lion's den would have been. It's a gigantic, humongous hole in the ground that you know, opened up in the bottom, kind of like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when, uh, what's his name? I'm drawing a blank. Indiana Jones falls down where all the snakes are. It's like that. That's what a pit would be like. And so apparently it's a snowy day and uh, Benaiah slips and falls into this pit. And guess what's waiting for him? Not snakes like Indiana Jones, but a lion. Everybody knows about Daniel in the pit of lions. But do you know about Benny who killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day? I mean, imagine going home and your wife asks you, how was your day, honey? And you replied, not, not bad, busy. 
Actually, I was building a snowman and slipped and fell into a pit, and there was a lion in there, so I killed it. How was your day, sweetie? Not only that, but I also killed an Egyptian warrior who did some modeling on the side, because verse 21 tells us he was a handsome man. I mean, you have to be really good looking for Scripture to talk about your looks. I mean, there's not a lot of people in Scripture that says this person was good looking, they're handsome. This guy must have been something. Well, Benny used his staff to snag the spear out of this Egyptian's hand, the good-looking Egyptian, and then he killed him with his own spear. Now, here's the question. What in the world do these verses teach us about God? What do they teach us about Jesus? Because that's the first question you should be asking when you read a weird passage in the Bible, one that makes you scratch your head. The first thing you should be thinking is, what is this weird passage telling me about my God? Not, what do you think it means? But what is it telling you about God? 2 Samuel 23 teaches us quite a few things about God, actually. We don't have time to unpack them, nor is the following list exhaustive by any means, but I'll just pick out three. But you should spend your Wednesday afternoon this week thinking about these things. Number one, God gives us the ability to do mighty and miraculous and mundane things for his glory. It's his kingdom It's his church. It's his power at work within us. Paul says, it was your grace at work within me. Therefore, God is the one who gets the glory. There is no place for pride. There is no place for arrogance. No place for patting yourself on the back when Jesus is in the room. No narcissists are allowed on Team Jesus. 2 Samuel 23 also teaches us that God cares about people. I know, I know, you may not highlight these verses in your Bible. You may think, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so what? But these seemingly boring lists remind us that God cares about people. He never tires of naming people. You have to like a God like that, don't you? You know, a God who keeps track of people's names in the Bible, a God who never tires of naming people, a God who keeps track of people's names in a book called The Lamb's Book of Life. Aren't you glad he keeps a list of names in The Lamb's Book of Life? Let me ask you, is your name written in The Lamb's Book of Life? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus so that he would write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, as those who have been redeemed by Him. Aren't you glad God keeps a list of names? The next time you read one of these genealogies that you think, oh, this is boring, like eight more chapters to go, just stop and think, thank you, Jesus, that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Third, 2 Samuel 23 teaches us that everything we do for God, big or small, pleases Him and extends His kingdom in this world. These are all mighty things done for the kingdom of God in David's day by David's mighty men, but they also remind us, if we kind of you know, <clears throat> come into the, the list and look around behind the scenes there, they remind us that 
Even the mundane and the ordinary things that we do for God matter too. Because in this list of David's mighty men, in David's army, there were also probably cooks and guys who milked cows and guys who sharpened swords and gathered water from the creek and who did the laundry after a bloody day on the battlefield and who tended to wounded soldiers and all kinds of stuff that don't get mentioned in this chapter. But if you read between the lines, you know they just didn't fight all the time. They had chores to do. If you're in the military, you have chores to do, don't you, right? Some of you know. You don't just sit around and shoot guns all day, go home and eat and go to bed. There's other things to do. So if we read between the lines, we know they did some very ordinary, mundane things too. They just didn't kill people all the time. They had chores to do. So 2 Samuel 23 is in the Bible to remind you that God can't remember all the bad things you've done, and he won't forget all the good things you do. We see that truth in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6:10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God will not overlook our work and the love that we show our brothers and sisters in Christ. The love we show him when we serve them. God writes them down in a book, if you will. And God won't overlook all these mighty acts done by David's men that furthered the kingdom of God in David's day. But I would think, too, that God also won't overlook all the mundane and ordinary acts done by the guys who, in David's army, cooked spaghetti for David and company and wrapped up wounds with gauze in the sick bay and washed all the dishes after the spaghetti supper and went and gathered grapes so the army could have some fruit in their diet and those who carried buckets of water back to fill up all the water coolers. God remembers the mighty, yes, but he also remembers the very mundane. Like if you served this morning and made coffee or you put rolled tables out at the, the breakfast this morning or you, you put chairs away, God remembers all that and always will. As you were working and serving your family this morning or working and serving here at Grace, it's like Jesus was walking around with a little notepad and just taking note of all that you were doing and thinking, I'm never going to forget this. So understand this, God is not in the habit of forgetting what his children do for him. God is not in the habit of forgetting what his kids do for him. And that's what David's mighty men and what his mundane men did. They did it for Yahweh and they did it for Yahweh's kingdom in David's day. And God won't forget that. And when our love for our Heavenly Father results in us serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, serving our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, then it brings God much delight. I mean, think about this. What father and mother, what father doesn't delight to see his children getting along and doing things for one another and serving one another, right? Parents, you know this. When you see your kids serving their siblings, or for crying out loud, sharing some of their Skittles? Does it not thrill your heart? To say, my kids are 
loving one. They're not bickering. They're not fighting. They're not causing drama. They're actually loving one another right now. Does that not fill your heart up? How much more our Heavenly Father when He sees us sharing and giving and serving and loving? Our Heavenly Father takes delight when His children are loving and serving one another because, as Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that matters is that your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ finds expression in your life for love for God and love for other people. That's all that matters. Your faith in Jesus finding expression in your life every day where you love and serve other people. And so when the gospel, Christ crucified for sinners, when the gospel gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart and you begin to love and serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, it pleases God. Gospel-motivated serving pleases God. When you think, Jesus served me, He laid his life down for me and my sin. I want to live for him and I want to go love and serve others. When you do that, when that's the motivation, not I'm getting brownie points with God, not when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to put a sticker next to my name, a little star sticker, like perfect attendance, not that. But when from the bottom of your heart is like, I want to serve people because God has been so good to me. When you do that, that pleases God. In their book, The Life We Never Expected, Andrew and Rachel Wilson remind us that God's purposes come about through millions of unnamed people doing unheard of things in unnoticeable ways to the glory of God. God's purposes in this world, his kingdom, comes about through millions of unnamed people doing unheard of things in unnoticeable ways to the glory of God. Of God. God's kingdom is extended in this world through some extraordinary ways. That does happen. But more often than not, and this is good news for us, more often than not, God's kingdom is extended through millions of unnamed people doing things that nobody ever hears about to the glory of God. People may not see you serving and loving others, but God does, and it brings Him glory. People may not see you working behind the scenes, but God does. And when you keep loving and working and serving, it extends his kingdom in this world. And it's all done by very ordinary people doing very ordinary, mundane things for the good of others and the glory of God's name. So keep serving. Keep loving. It matters. Keep serving your family. Keep loving your family. Keep serving here at church, at Grace because it matters. Well, as we wrap up, did you catch the last name in the list of David's mighty men? Let me read it again to you. Look at verse 39. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. I think Uriah is listed on purpose. And we don't have time to go into all the details, but a few episodes back in 2 Samuel 11, you know the story. David abused his power by killing Uriah and then taking his wife Bathsheba. Total abuse of power. Uriah is innocent. Bathsheba is innocent. David, guilty, guilty, guilty. Not David's greatest moment. So why mention Uriah the Hittite last? Is it to remind us of David's sin? I don't think so. 
I mean, sure, we can't help but think of that awful situation. When we read Uriah's name, we remember what David did in 2 Samuel 11. But if we know our Bibles, we are also reminded of the grace that David received after that incident. As he later sang in Psalm 51. Let me read a few verses of it. 7 through 10. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so when you take verse 39 of 2 Samuel 23 and you read Uriah the Hittite and you add that to Psalm 51, it's a sweet little reminder that we are forgiven. A sweet little reminder that God loves sinners like us. A sweet little reminder that there's grace for every sin, for every slip, for every stumble, even yours. Even what you did this week, there's grace. It's a sweet little reminder that God can't remember all the bad things you have done and he won't forget all the good things you do. So if you are a Christian united by faith to Jesus and in union with him, then everything that you have ever done against God and done against his glory and against his kingdom and against his law, he cannot remember. Jeremiah 31, 34 tells us, I will remember their sins no more. It gets picked up again twice in Hebrews 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10. I will remember their sins no more. Jesus can't remember your sins. He took care of that at the cross. And everything that you've ever done for the good of others and for the glory of God's name, he won't forget. You have to like a God like that, don't you? Let's pray. Jesus, we do like you. We love you. We love that this is what you're like. One, that you don't remember our sins. Of course you know them. You're omniscient. You could tell us at any moment of any day in our life exactly how we sinned, at what minute, what hour, what day, what week, what month, what year. You know it, but you don't know it. You don't remember it. You don't treat us as if it's at the forefront of your thinking. It's astonishing, but it's true as your word says. You will remember our sins no more. And so we like you and we love you for that. But also, we know our works are sin-stained. And yet, Lord, many times there's selfish motives for why we love and serve other people. We want to look good. We think we're getting brownie points with you. We think you'll give us a sticker. And yet, knowing that they're stained with sin, you still remember them. And you take note of them. And then, of course, Jesus, we like you and we love you because you laid your life down for us on the cross. You lived a perfect life in our behalf. You died in our place. God rose you from the dead. You ascended. You reign. You're coming soon to gather us to be with you forever. So how could we not like you? How could we not love you? Help us to do that more in your name. Amen.